0: So Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount. Let's go into the Lord prayer. Lord Jesus, my sovereign Lord, sovereign King, you're so awesome. Your Holy Spirit, God, we're communing, communing with you, Lord. Oh, God, you're just awesome. Lord, I pray for revelation today and my brothers and sisters, God, that your word may come alive, jump off the pages, God, into the hearts. Lord, show us the joy and in praising you and what you want for us and what you have called us to, Lord. Sovereign God, we just lift you up on high. Jesus reigning, King, Lord of Lords. Oh, Lord, it is you we love, it is you we praise. Our heart is seeking after you. We are chasing after you because we want more of you. Fill us, Lord God. Let us in prayer. Amen. amen. So our verses today will be verses 5 and 6, so I don't expect to be too long today, but uh, verses 5 and 6, we only really prayer. Armando? <clears throat> yeah. Are you, buddy? Or are you? <laughs> the Attitude of the Heart When Praying. Since last week was The Attitude of the Heart When Giving, and so if you want to give it a title, that you can remember it, The Attitude of the Heart When Now, I want to. Before we get to to six, I want to correct something that I said before. I want to correct something. Um, When we were ending chapter five and going into chapter six, I said in chapter five that here Jesus was ending his direct comparison. Oh man! His direct comparison. the righteousness of the kingdom of God to that of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. I said that he was was ending that direct comparison showing this is what the kingdom of God looks like, this is what true uh, uh, faith and relationship with God looks like versus religion, man-made rules. And so I said that he was ending his his direct uh, comparison. Now while he doesn't use the customary, but I say to you phrases in chapter 6, Jesus is still, in chapter 6, especially in his first three teachings on prayer, fasting, and giving, he is still very much making a contrast. He's still very much making a contrast between the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees and the righteousness of the kingdom of God. The difference is, however, in chapter 5, compared to verse 6, in chapter 5, he's addressing orthodoxy. He's addressing bad doctrine. So that's what we have in chapter 5. He's making a comparison there. He's addressing orthodoxy, or our bad, doc, um, our bad doctrine, or bad teaching that's being put out there to the masses. And we see he's correcting that. That's why he says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. So he, he's checking or he's confronting bad doctrine, bad orthodoxy. But in chapter 6, as opposed to confronting bad orthodoxy, he is confronting uh, bad orthopraxy. The, the practice of the faith. So he's, he's doing two different comparisons. It's doctrine, and one is the actual practicing of the righteousness, the actual doing. So that is what we find in 6. He's still doing a contrast. It's just a different type of contrast. Where now he's getting to the actual practices. So that is why in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men. So he, he's making a contrast here. Um, that it's, it is not just doctrine. Because sometimes we can get so caught up with God, we say, especially to some of the teachers we love, we say they're solid, they're solid doctrinally, they're solid teachers, they're are, are great teachers of the faith, they're solid, but then we forget about their orthopraxy, how is their practice? It's, it's one thing to have good doctrine, but what is your life looking like? Do you also have good action, orthopraxy, are you doing what you say, or do you have a whole bunch of just good theology? You can have a whole bunch of good theology, a bunch of knowledge, but not actually live out what you're understanding or, or teaching and, and learning. So that there's a, a difference there. We don't want to be so unbalanced where we have this great doctrine, but yet we don't actually live this doctrine out. Mm-hmm. And the other end, we don't want to be so just doing, just orthopraxy, and have bad doctrine. You, you want to have both. You want to have the doctrine straight and you want to have your practice straightened. So... Uh, Jesus is is making those contrasts, and we can see an example, of this, matter of fact, in in Revelations 2, I'm not going to go there, but you can go there in your own time, where Jesus is uh, writing the the letters to the church in Ephesus, and the church of Ephesus, they had a solid doctrine, they were solid doctrinally, they were good there, but they had an issue with love, and showing love to others, and going to their first love, so their doctrine was right, but their practice, if you will, that they were missing love. And if you go over in that same chapter of the church in the move, they had a doctrine problem. They were allowing some false teaching in the church. The, the, the Nicolau, I forgot the Nicol something. Nicolauans. Nicolauans, there we go. Good job. Mm-hmm. Nicolas, right. They were allowing that in the church and their false teaching, so they had a doctrine issue over there. So we, we just want to always make sure that our doctrine and our practice line up. We don't want to be unbalanced. Um, so now in chapter 6 here, we see we seen last week that Christ was showing us that we have to be careful in our giving and in how we're giving to make sure that we are doing it for the right reasons because even things that we do that are good, we can turn those into sin. Giving is good. Helping the poor is good. Helping the needy is good. But we can turn that thing into sin when we start to do it for the wrong reasons, right? When we start doing it for the attention of men, we start doing it for the attention of others. And so Jesus was showing us that in chapter 6 that you have to be aware of that. Because as you live this Christian life, I like how Diedrich Bonhoeffer Calls it. He calls it the extraordinary life. Um, for some of you who are not familiar with Dietrich von he was a. He lived on a, the period of uh, Adolf Hitler, and he was one of the Christians that plotted in the assassination of Adolf Hitler. And he, I mean, he was solid theology, <laughs> um, and he, and his practice. And so, uh, obviously, we know that Hitler didn't die, and so he, the plot got spoiled, spoiled, and um, he ended up getting. I don't know if he was shot or hanged, but either one. So, he, did, he was shot? Okay. Yeah, so, he, did, he didn't make it, but he had this, in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, he called this, this Christian life, this, this, this righteousness that Christ is calling us to here in the Sermon on the Mount, the extraordinary. It's extraordinary because we are living a life that is above ordinary. And when you begin to live a life that is above ordinary, you what? You attract attention. As we mentioned, as we have changed from our old life into our new ways, people begin to notice, and they know there's something different about you, and people are now talking nice about you and great about you, and you begin to like those things, and you can begin to feed off of those things and want those things and say the right holy phrases, because, you know, if you say this, people will look at you right. And so Jesus is warning us, remember, it's six to be aware of practicing your righteousness before men. Because, remember, it's so easy to get caught up so among other things he's saying be aware of your giving which we looked at last week and he's going to show us today to be aware of how we pray and then next week we'll look at being aware of our fasting to make sure that we are fasting for the right reasons for the right purposes and not just to show people that we are so holy now in our text today Matter of fact, I don't think I'm ready, I just started going. <laughs> <laughs> let's just let's reach out. verses five and six. Jesus says, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray for your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you, will reward you. And one of the first things we must understand is that when Jesus is giving this sermon on the Mount, he's talking to a largely Jewish audience. And we must understand that prayer was essential to the first century Jewish life. Prayer was not just something they did here and there, but it was like, it was mandated. It was something that you grew up doing. For example, the, the Jews, they prayed three times a day. It was mandatory that you prayed three times a day. And they prayed scripted liturgical prayers. So that their prayers were based on something that was written. Um, and one of the prayers that they would pray was the Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Um, it's, hear, O Lord, or, sorry, hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. For a Orthodox Jew now and a first century Jew, the first thing off of their mouth is that prayer, the Shema. They would say that. That's the first thing that they're praying when they wake up. And when they go to sleep, the last thing on their lips is going to be this prayer. So the prayer was very essential to their life. In addition to, in addition to the Shema, they also prayed the uh, Amida. Amida, it was a, a blessing, it was 18 blessings, it was a scripted prayer, they actually boosted it to 19, but they would pray this as well, and they would pray this three times a day. So you had the Shema that you would pray in the morning, and when you went to bed, and they also had the Amida, which they would pray three times a day. And they would pray this during the third hour, which is 9 a.m., and they would do this prayer at the uh, sixth hour, which is noon, and they would do the last one at 3 p.m., which was the ninth hour. And those prayers also corresponded with the daily sacrifices in the temple. Remember uh, the scripture, they were required to offer up lambs daily, right? And so the, the uh the sacrifices they would offer up in the temple would correspond with these prayers, and so they would do these prayers three times a day. And so even when it came, let's say you were out at the grocery store or something like that, and you heard a, the, the trumpet blow from the temple to let people know that a sacrifice was taking place and you knew it was the third or the, the ninth hour, you would kind of stop what you're doing, just kind of like what you see with some Muslims, if you go to a Muslim country, if they're out and it's time for them to pray, it doesn't matter where they are they'll get on the sidewalk, they'll get off their rug and they'll turn towards Mecca and they'll start praying, and that was similar to what the Jews would do, so it didn't, kind of, it didn't matter where you are, you knew you had to get your three prayers in, so praying was essential to Jewish life We see that Daniel, he prayed three times a day. Um, We see that David, David prayed three times a day. So this prayer routine was intrinsic to the life of a first century person. It was so intrinsic to the life of a first century Jewish person that even the disciples, even the disciples after conversion, they were still on the schedule. For example, in Acts 3.1, we have Peter and John here. It says that they were going up to the temple at the night hour, the hour of prayer. So it was then that they were still going up to the temple because why? that was so a part of the custom of the Jewish life that you had to pray. So when Jesus speaks of praying, these people understand prayer because prayer was so good. But as I mentioned earlier, we can easily turn something like prayer to something bad. We can easily turn something that is righteous to something that is not righteous to something that is not good and that is what Jesus is here addressing when he's calling out the hypocrites. If you remember this word, hypocrites, it's in Greek it's the actor. Remember that's what the Greek actor was. A hypocrite was an actor that wore a mask. So they were playing in a play, they would have a mask on that Conceal their true identity. And so Jesus is saying, these hypocrites, they're praying because they are trying to look holy and pious as if they are communing with God, as as if they know him, as if their heart is directed towards him, but truthfully, it is not there. So you can imagine, right, when they, it's time to do the noon prayer. And and you know it's that time to do, do the noon prayer? And you can imagine the hypocrite Looking around like, okay, it's my time now, right? He's going to get ready to get his prayer position. And he's about to pray extra loud and extra hard so that everybody can see how holy and how pious he is. He's about to attract all of the attention to himself. See, because why he, he he is craving the attention of men. See, he wants to look like on the outside he is holy. He wants to look like on the outside he is committed to God, but on the inside he's a craving the attention of people. So essentially, he has a mask on, even in his prayer time, even in his so-called prayer time to God, he's still putting on a performance, a performance, even in prayer. So Jesus is pointing this out to his disciples, saying, this is what orthopraxy gone bad looks like. This is how you don't want to pray, Jesus is telling us. You don't want to pray where your heart is not directed towards God, when it's not directed towards the Father, but your intention is your own glory, your own fame, your own notoriety. He said, this is not how you want to pray. You don't want to do this. This is what orthoproxy gone bad looks like. That's what he's showing us in, in chapter 5 with a hypocrite. But let's just park here for a minute. Just for a minute. What is it, what is it about our sinful nature that craves to be seen, that craves to be number one? Even in our prayer, we're still craving to be number one. Even when we should be directing our minds to God, we still will, will do things for our own self. What is it that is inside of us that we just want to be? Seeing that we just want to be noticed, you—you you can even go to Adam and Eve. They were thinking about self and wanting to be like God. They want their own attention and they want their own glory. Or you can look at Isaiah, um, Isaiah fourteen. I know people debate this text. They say this is talking about Satan. Other people say it's not. But if you, let me just, let me just go there. Let me go to Isaiah real quick. Isaiah fourteen. Hey, I don't want your pages turning, Nobody know? you see guys <laughs> Isaiah 14. <coughs> and here we go. Remember, this is just a sigh. I remember one of my first sermons I was preaching, and I um, was talking about Satan, we lift up and crying, I'm like, that's exactly what Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah 11. But it wasn't 11, it was 14. You're right? And I just like, I'm like, oh my goodness, I told them the wrong words. just do remember. The Lord you know, was using that to help you not be prideful. <laughs> Seriously, right? <laughs> And I remember after it was over, I sat back right down and I told the pastor, I'm like, oh, I told you the wrong verses. And, uh, matter of fact, I was just misquoting a whole bunch of verses. Would, and a lady called me out on that. I'm like, oh, I did say that, huh, right? And so, uh, you, learn, you learn, right? That happens. But um, here in Isaiah 13-14, look what it says here about the individual which most would say this is, this is Satan, but I just want you to get the point. He says but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will sit above the heights of the cloud, I will make myself like the most high. <laughs> That's man the right there wanting to lift up themselves to make themselves like the most high. that we get all of this attention and, 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 and fame and, and we want all of this notoriety. I wonder if that's why some of our relationships are bad. Why we will get into bad relationships because we'll hear a person give us a, a compliment and we just so want to be Complimented and we we take that and we'll give our hearts away to people that should not have it. Why? Because we like the attention, we like how they're lifting me up and making me feel good. And I I wonder if that's the reason why some of that is. But we see Jesus is showing us that that's not the way. You can also look at our even our our YouTube culture. On YouTube, people will put some of the craziest videos up there why just so that they can go viral and be famous just for like 15 minutes they don't care if it makes them look foolish but as long as it brings them fame as long as the attention is directed their way we will mm-hmm. go and take it so that's just a part of our sinful nature we we love this we, we love the power coming us. so we see now with the hypocrite in this verse in our main text let me get back to this. So the hypocrite, we see how he's using a posture which is prayer. He's using a posture of prayer which is meant to commune with God. He's using that posture for his own glory. Which tells me that there is something in our simple DNA that wants to be things, that wants to be known. Maybe that's why we love so our reality shows and our social media because those draw attention to the in the visuals, so that could be the cause. But in Jesus, in in uh, verse six, he's now going to show us what orthodoxy or orthopraxy in truth looks like. He's going to show us it. He says, "But when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will." Reward you. Now, when people read that text, some say, Is Jesus absolutizing private prayer meaning that all prayer has to be in public for it to count? No. That that is the debate amongst this text. Um, I was watching a a YouTube video on the same sermon, and the pastor was saying that he did not believe that Jesus was absolutizing prayer to be a private practice. And I remember I scrolled down in the comment section, which is always risky, right? When you scroll down in the comment section, because that's where everybody's debating each other and calling each other names. And so I, I scrolled down in the, the comment section, and there was a comment that said, just listen to Jesus and pray in and private. And, and I'm like, that is where the debate, see, the speaker was just absolutizing absolute prayer. Because, see, we like things, we like to systematize things. We like for things to be black and white. We don't want to have to do the, the, the hermeneutics that really shows us how prayer should look. And so the, the person in the comment just wanted this black and white to say, just follow Jesus. forget what everybody else is saying. You should just pray in prayer. But that's not the case. I don't believe that Jesus meant when he says to go in the closet that all prayer to the Lord should be private. And the reason I don't believe that is because the early church, they didn't believe that. The apostles, it, it looks like they don't believe that. Because we find private prayer all throughout the book of Acts. For example, in Acts chapter 1, when the apostles were deciding who would fill Judas' apostleship, they were praying in public and gathering and calling out to the Lord to discern would <coughs> be that person. In Acts chapter 3, we already looked at that. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. They were going up at the ninth hour. That's public prayer. In Acts 4 24, after Peter and John are released from prison, they go to the church, the house church, and they begin to pray with the church in public. We find in Acts 6, when they were choosing the first deacons, that they prayed in public and decided who was going to be the deacons. We look in Acts 13, when Paul began his public ministry, there was a public prayer to decide where he was going to go, who was going to go with him. Mm-hmm. If you look in Acts 20, there was a public prayer when Paul is saying his last goodbye to the Ephesians. They're all praying in public. So I don't think that Jesus here is absolutizing uh, private prayer. So praying in public is not a problem. But just like we looked at with giving, it is the attitude of the heart. It is the intention of the heart when you pray. Are you seeking the attention of others? Or are you seeking the attention, or is your heart directed towards God? I was uh, listening to John McArthur, matter of fact. He was, he was preaching on this, and he, he was saying that even private prayers can be phony. And he was giving an example of a, of a guy who would go in his house, let people know he's going to go in his house to pray. And he said he would pray so loud that everybody, the neighbors, would all hear him. Just because he's in private, but he's doing the worst. his heart? His heart is for the attention of people. His heart is he wants other people to hear how holy and how pious he is. So even in private, your prayers can be phony. Even in private. And think about phony prayers. Phony prayers may get us the attention of men and women. Well, that attention is often short-lived because in the same breath that we'll praise a person, we'll curse them out or we'll turn them down in a second way. So it's like this, why are we seeking the attention of people? Why do we care so much about them when they will just turn in, a, in an instant and be somewhere else and not even care about who we are? So those, those rewards are short-term. Those are short-term rewards. But Jesus says that when we go, we pray for the Father in secret, he says that the reward, the Father will reward you. That will be a real reward. Now Jesus is doing that same thing that I talked about last week. Remember I said he's going against the Jesus of my mind. Because the Jesus in my mind doesn't talk about reward; he just talks about holiness. He doesn't want you thinking reward, but the true Jesus, the Jesus of Scripture, he brings up the reward thing again. He's talking about reward. He says that my Father will see you when you go to him in secret, when you're not going to him uh, looking for the attention of men and women. He said he will reward you. So the question I would ask, I hope that you're asking, is: so what is the reward? Right? Some say that the reward is spiritual. Some say the reward, the reward is all spiritual, or right? it is a treasure that has been stored up in heaven in our heavenly bank account that will be revealed on the day we approach the Bema Seat, or the Judgment Seat of God, and we will receive those rewards. Some say it is that. Some say that the reward here in the context of prayer is answered prayer. I said, that's the reward. And if you go to the Father and you go with a true and sincere heart, the reward that the Father will give you is answered prayer. Mm -hmm. But is God really rewarding us for just talking to him? Mm -hmm. Because that's what prayer is, right? Prayer is me communicating with God in a basic sense. So is is, is God really uh, rewarding us for talking to him? To answer that question, I kind of (coughs) want to... I want us to look at Luke 17. I know we talked about this in the Q&A last week. But to answer that question, I want us to look at Luke 17 real quick. Come on, pages. Verses 7 to 10. We briefly talked about it. But now I'm about to add some additional attention to your fishing pole, I want you to think about what what the Lord was saying. He said come to the flies that if you Go to the Father. There's reward. Jesus is reminding them of reward. He's been doing it all throughout the Sermon on the Bible. There is reward for righteous living. There's reward for for working holiness. So Jesus says, come. He's reminding them. There is reward. Mm -hmm. But I want us to look at Luke 17. Let's add some tension here. Let's let's see what he says here in in Luke 17. Verses 7 through 10. Mm -hmm. He says this, he says, which of you having a slave plowing and tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat. But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly close yourself and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterwards you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded. Does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Hmm. Paradoxical verses in scripture. It's not a rare thing. So Matthew 6 is looking like Jesus is directing our attention towards his reward for practicing righteousness. And in Luke 17, it looks like there shouldn't be any thought on reward, and we should be doing this. See, the the Luke 17 is the Jesus of my mind. Remember, I described that. That, That's the Jesus of my mind. The Luke 17 is Jesus saying, you ought to be practicing holiness and righteousness because God is holy and righteous, and he has saved you and called you. That is the Jesus of my mind, but the Jesus of the scripture also says that there is reward. So how do we balance this? paradox, if you will, between these two verses. And I want to lead you to another place to answer that. <laughs> so just walk walk with me follow me here. I want you to turn to now Revelations. We're going to come back there. We're not done. Revelations. Revelation. I always put the S on the end. Revelation. 4 <laughs> 9 through 11. I think this will help us to answer these the questions that we're asking here. Revelation. Four nine through eleven. So what do we have here? Let's just paint the scene. We have God on his throne, and God on his throne has twenty four thrones around him and he, he has elders sitting on this throne and they are with their white rabbit, the clothing and they have crowns on their head you have the heavenly beast flying around and, and, and the scripture says they're, they're talking about how holy God is, they're saying holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was and who is to come so they are in the presence of God they see God who he is, they're doing what we're going to be doing, they are worshiping with their heart, with their mouth, they're singing praise mm-hmm. day, and night. Uh, then, day and night day and night, there you go the and night, and then 10 says this about the elders, that's who we're focusing on, the elders that are sitting on the thrones with the white garment and the golden crowns on their head, he says, and the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever, and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory, honor, and power, for You created all things, and because of You, because of Your will, they existed and were created. So you see what, what what's happening here. We got the ten, we got the, the twenty-four elders. They're in their holy white garbage which God gave them. They're sitting on thrones in the presence of God, which God allowed them to do. He gave them that authority. He allowed them to sit on thrones. They have golden crowns on their head, which God gave them. But what did they do afterwards? All the glory that God gave them, they threw it back at God and said, You gave us this, but we're not worthy. You see, the the, the crown that God has given them, the position, they are throwing it right back at God and saying that we are not worthy. They they, they realize that even though God has given me this, that I'm not worthy to have it. This is not something that I own. They recognize this is just by the Mm -hmm. grace of God that they have this position. And so this is the same thing with us. When God rewards us, it is not something saying where, God, we owe, you owe this to us. But no, we have the posture as the same elders here. We realize, God, thank you for this reward, but we're not even worthy. You don't owe me this. This is not something that I have earned, but this is all by your grace. So he, he's given us the, the posture of how a person should look at the rewards and the gifts that God has given us. Yes, we understand that there's reward, but we understand even in those rewards that we are not worthy. Even those rewards, we, we have the posture of heart and understanding that, God, there's nothing I can do to earn that. This is all of your goodness. So we, we keep the posture of the servant, yet understanding that God in his grace has given us reward. And see, that, that is how we, end up. we We balance this thing. See, in, 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 um, in, in Matthew 6, Jesus shows us the reward that we get. But in Luke 17, Jesus shows us the posture that we should have when we receive the reward or the posture that we should have in, in anticipation of receiving the reward. One is showing us the reward. Luke 17 is showing us the posture of how we should be when we receive the reward. Mm-hmm. Understanding that we are just slaves and we are just doing what we should do but because of your grace you have given us to us but we are not looking at this thing as God rewarded us as if he owes us something. So that's how we, we balance this, this so-called paradox. We see that Jesus is addressing two different things here. One is at the reward, one is looking at the the, the posture of receiving the reward. So you must understand that like these elders, God, I don't deserve any of this. Even the rewards I yeah, get, no, I'm not worthy. It's all you. We, 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 can't, we can't take any glory or credit to ourselves. Whatever God has given us, is all him in the first place. So yes, we can expect reward because Jesus promised it. But we must understand that you and I are not worthy of it. And see, because the only reason that we are able to keep his commandments and walk in holiness and practice righteousness is because of his Holy Spirit that is working inside of us in the first place. It's crazy. He, he's rewarding us for something that we can't even do without him in the first place. It's only by his Holy Spirit that you are walking holy now. It, it is only by his Spirit that you have been set free from the bondage of sin. So you get no credit in any of this. The reason that you're having victory over sin is because Jesus has given you the victory over sin. So even as you walk in holiness and you walk in righteousness, you must understand that it is Jesus that gets the glory. It is not you. It's not because you're so cute or because you've got it together or you have great theology. No, it has nothing to do with you. It's because of Christ working in you. The reason that you're loving your husband or wife like you ought to, that is the regeneration. That is the work of the Holy Spirit who has changed your mind to, to see your husband how you see him or to see your wife how you see her. That is the work of the Spirit because you are now loving your neighbor. It's not because you got it all together, but that is the work of the Spirit of Christ inside of you because you are going out and you're preaching and you're sharing and you're loving. That is not because you are something special. That is the work of God in you. So even when we practice our righteousness that God is going to reward us for, he's, it's still his work, anyways. It's all of him. So there is no contradiction between Luke 17 and Matthew 6. Once again it's addressing the Lord. Once again it's addressing the posture of the heart and receiving the reward, our anticipation of receiving the reward. Now the other question we must address. Is the reward whether the future or now? Is the reward answered prayer? Is Jesus saying that my prayer, or the, the way that I'm going to reward you if, you, if you come to me, seek my Father, and seek without seeking the attention of men, the prayer or the, the reward is answered prayer? That what Jesus is saying here in Matthew six six. I could be wrong, but I, I tend to think that's not what He's saying. I don't think that the reward is answered prayer. And the reason I say that is because Jesus throughout the gospel describes God as what? A father. In the next chapter, in chapter 7, Jesus, he talks about if we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children. Our heavenly father, who is the perfect father, knows how to give good gifts as well. So if we know how to give give, give, uh, good gifts to our kids as uh, fathers and, and mothers, and he said that God then, he knows even more because he's the perfect father. He's the perfect loving one. He's the perfect parent. So he knows more than anything. So when we are praying to God as children, it's not as if he's rewarding us for praying. It's not that if, if Nehemiah and Serenity and Aaron come to me and say, Daddy, I'm hungry. I, I need some food. And I'm going to say, I'm going to reward you with food. No, I'm not rewarding them with food. But because I'm a loving father who's concerned for them, I'm going to do and take care of them. How much more is God? it's, and it's not God rewarding, but it's God just being a, a loving father, a caring father, taking care of his children. It's not reward. But the other thing we must understand is as Christians we have dual identities. We have dual identities. On, on one hand, we are children of God. We are his kids. On one hand, we are children of God. And in 1 John 3.1 it says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such as we are. So we are on the one hand, we are children of God. We are his children. but. Also, the scripture says we are servants of God. So we have a, a dual identity. You look at 2 Timothy 2, 24, uh, Paul, he says, we are described, Paul describes the believer as the Lord's bond servants. A bondservant. A bondservant was someone who wanted to be a servant of another. They chose to stay in that position. He said, we are the Lord's bondservants. And 2 Corinthians 6, 4, Paul describes himself as a servant of God. So on one hand, we are children of God. On the other hand, we are servants of God. And you can see this with Jesus. If you look at Philippians 2, 5-9, Jesus is described there as a servant. And as being a good, obedient servant, he is rewarded for that obedience. We find that in Philippians 2, 5-9, Jesus is described as that servant, that humble servant. And because of his obedience to the Father, he is rewarded for his obedience. But then again, if you look at John five twenty, it describes Jesus as a son who is loved of the Father. So Jesus has his, this dual identity as well. He has more. He's a high priest. We can go to all those different things. But I'm just trying to make a point here that Jesus has the dual identity, just like we have this dual identity. So when we pray as servants, I'm sorry, when when we keep God's commandments as servants, yes, he rewards us for obedience. There's reward for obedience as servants of God. But as children of God, we are praying to him as a father, and we are cared for because he loves us as his children. So on one hand, we're servants of God, and out of obedience, Jesus says, to pray, we pray. We understand that. We are being obedient to our Lord, and there's reward, Christ shows us, for being obedient. But as children of God. This is our Father loving and caring for us. This is just His compassion and His open heart. So we must understand where we are in this faithful. We have these dual identities. We will be rewarded by the Father. We will be rewarded for being obedient. But we also understand that we have not earned anything, that is only by the grace of God that we stand. So, whatever glory we get, we know we are like the elders, we are casting and casting, God, we are not worthy. The glory that God gave them with, with crowns, they gave it back. The life that God gives us, the new life. Guess what? We give our life back to God. We we give back that thing that is most valuable to Him. That crown was something that was valuable to Him. But they looked at God. And they said, "This thing that You gave me, this crown. Now I'm giving it back to You. This this valuable thing. I'm giving it back to You." And that is what we do with our lives when God comes in and He gives us new life. He transforms us. Now we say, "Lord, I'm giving my life back to You. My whole life is directed towards You. I am not worthy to keep this holiness, this sanctification that You have done for me." all to myself you didn't make me holy so I could just walk around holy but you made me holy you have transformed me for your purposes so I'm giving my life back to you that you have given me I'm not worthy we're not worthy and that is how we come we approach the Lord he's father but we understand God we don't have to do anything he's already saved me that's sufficient so we go to our Lord in prayer to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. Lord God, you are amazing. Thank you for giving us the position as servants and children. You hearing us in our prayer, speaking to us. You have cleansed us, made us new. Thank you for your scripture and showing us what true prayer life looks like. Oh, Lord God, thank you for correcting us in our own ways. Thank you for that grace not allowing us to stay just going the wrong way and following the traditions and the, the norms, Lord God, but you came and gave your word, and your word gives us life. So, God, speak to us in our moment of weakness when we're crying out to you or in the moments of joy when we gather together in the church. Speak to us, Lord God, as we communicate with you. For your eyes alone, for your glory alone, not for our praise. Lord God, we thank you for the opportunity that right now, Lord, you speak. You hear us. You hear the prayer of your children, Lord God. We want you to be pleased with us, Lord, in all things. Lord God, be glorified.
1: Amen.